0: Good morning, my name is Andy. I am one of the pastors here. If this is your first time joining us, online or in person, we are so glad that you're here. And it is not going to happen, so we're going to do it from my phone this morning. This will be a first. So bear with me. I I will say this. This morning is going to be unlike some other mornings. When I teach, I typically like to find the chunk of scripture, look at the story we're going to look at, and then we read it together. That'll still happen. But I like to provide a lot of historical background and dive deep into the character development. We're not going to do a whole lot of that this morning. We're going to do something a little different. We're still going to get to the truth of the story. That's not going to change. And the reason we're going to do something a little different today is because I believe in the power of story. I believe our story matters. Our story has an impact. And so I believe our story is our gift. It provides hope to other people that haven't... maybe they're going to go through or have gone through or are going through something similar. And so it gives them hope that they get on the other side of it too. And anytime we share our personal story, our testimony, how we came to faith in Jesus, it continues to provide those deep seeds of faith for people. And we're going to watch a video a little bit later that talks a lot about that. But the other thing I love about our story is it reminds us that Even when we come up to other obstacles in life, it reminds us that we've come through the other side at other points in our life. So it gives us hope, and it gives us the faith and the belief that we too can come through anything that comes in our path. That our circumstances do not define us, they certainly just refine us. So, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at this story in the book of Acts chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, by all means grab one in the back, they're absolutely free. And again, that's one of the ways we can continue to be generous, because you guys are so generous. We like to offer as many free resources as we can, and a Bible is one of those. I just said this this morning. If we go broke buying Bibles, Jesus and I are going to have to have a conversation, right? Like, We want to get God's Word in people's hands the best way we can, and so they're absolutely free. If you don't have one, please grab one. Grab a journal as well. We're going to look at um, chapter 9, and we're going to look at these Christ followers, that as you read through the book of Acts, you're going to learn and read that they're known as followers of the way, followers of the way is what you're going to see. So I want to talk a little bit right before this, there's a guy named Stephen two chapters before this actually. The this guy named Saul is a witness to and approves the killing, the stoning of Stephen. Stephen is a follower of Jesus. Um, there's these false accusations made against him. They have these false witnesses come, uh, come in front and, and explain all these lies that they say Stephen's doing, and they kill him, and it says, Saul not only witnessed, but approved this. So this is kind of the background, a little bit, of this guy named Saul that we'll later know as Paul. In a few chapters in your reading plan, you're going to read that he is renamed Paul. But that's where we are in uh, chapter 9, if you guys are following along, and this is what it says. It might be easier for me to read from this big screen here instead of this little phone. Saul was still breathing out murderous threats. Again, he's been given permission uh, to go to these different cities. He's going to go to Damascus, we're going to read here in just a second, which is like this commercial city. And so he's been given approval to to arrest these followers of the way against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked for the letters to the synagogue in Damascus so that if any found there who belonged to the way, who were followers of Jesus, Whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and fell to the ground. And he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go to the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could not see anything. So they led him by hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Keep that up there, but just pause. Again, I say this a lot. Try to insert yourself into the story here. Imagine you're Saul. What do you think is going through your mind? Like, you have this encounter, you open your eyes, you can't see for three days. Like, what in the world is going on? In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he was seen. He has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Now, Ananias remembers a disciple of Jesus. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings. Again, keep that up there. Now, if you're Ananias, you're like, I don't want any part of this, right? Like, I've heard about what Saul has done. I know what he's given authority to do, and I know what he's likely to do. Let's see if this is going to work. I know what he's likely going to do if he sees me. So he's fearful, right? And to the people of Israel, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name, talking about Saul. Then Ananias went to the house, even though he didn't want to, and entered it. I mean, just imagine all these things happen. This man that was once leading the charge to arrest people, be witness to killing people who were followers of the way, has now become one of those same followers. This ends up being the man, as we'll know as Paul, who writes most of the New Testament. As we get into these New Testament letters in the next couple of weeks, his life now has taken on a whole new meaning. And this is just really a glimpse of what happens in our own lives. When we say yes to Jesus, when we become a follower of the way, when we give our lives to Christ, and He breaks in and He starts to guide us, this is what happens. This is what can happen. Now, I've told my faith stories over the 10 plus years of our existence many, many times. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time going through my own personal faith story this morning. But if you're like, well, I haven't heard it yet, well, good news, you can go to our website and you can go to our uh, who we are. Uh, tab or under and see the BACC team. Click on that. You'll see my little profile picture and you can click on that video. I've recorded it. You can go watch it. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time. I'm going to tell parts of it later, but I want us to just be aware of the impact of our story. So we're going to spend some time, actually a longer time watching a video than I would like us to watch. Honestly, I watched it this morning like there's got to be some places I can cut, but the story is just so compelling and so good. Because it's somebody else's faith story, and I think many of us in this room, or if you're watching online, will be able to re- just really relate to this. So this story, or this video we're going to watch, is a man who was, um, was a lawyer, he was a uh, journalist, he later becomes an author, which I'll talk about a few of his books in a moment, and is, was a former pastor. So I think this video actually is a video he recorded for his own church, Um, some some years ago so let's watch this let's watch Lee Strobel
1: hello Coventry I'm Lee Strobel I wish so much I could be with you but uh, I'm here in my home in Houston Texas and so glad to be able to share with you uh, today a true story Uh, it's my story and it's a story that began in atheism because I decided at you know rather young age that God does not and cannot exist Now, I just thought the mere concept of an all-loving, all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the universe, come on, it's crazy, wasn't even worth my time to check out. Now, granted, I tend to be a skeptical person. My background's in journalism and law, so you can imagine put those two things together, what kind of a jerk that, or skeptic, what kind of a skeptic that you get. Uh, I was legal editor of the Chicago Tribune, and we used to pride ourselves on our skepticism. We didn't accept anybody's word at face value. We always tried to get at least two sources to confirm a fact before we print it in the newspaper. So no kidding, we had a sign in our newsroom that said, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. Maybe she's lying. Got any proof, got anything to back that up? And that's okay for a journalist to be skeptical, right? I mean, sometimes I wish they were more skeptical than they are, but here's my problem. My skepticism bubbled over into cynicism and it cemented me into my atheism. Now, because I had no belief in God, I, I really lacked a moral framework for my life. Now, I'm not saying all atheists are like this. I'm just saying this is the way I looked at the world. I tend to be logical. I tend to be rational. So I said, okay, uh, if there is no God, if there is no heaven, if there is no hell, if there is no judgment, if there is no ultimate accountability, then the most logical way for me to live my life would be as a hedonist, someone who just pursued pleasure. And that's what I did. And so I lived a very immoral and drunken and profane and narcissistic, self-absorbed, really in a lot of ways self-destructive kind of a life. That was my life. What people saw was my success. What they saw was me graduating from Yale Law School. What they saw was me winning awards for investigative reporting. But they didn't see the other side, which was me literally drunk in the snow in an alley on Saturday night. I had so much rage inside of me, so much anger. If you asked me back then, hey, what's the deal? Why the anger? I couldn't have told you. But looking back, I know what it was. I was always after the perfect high. You know, I I was always after that ultimate experience of pleasure. But guess what? Everything let me down. Nothing lived up to the hype. So I had a rage inside. I remember once, my wife Leslie and I got in an argument, and our little daughter was there, and and, and I had so much rage, I just blew up, and and I reared back, and I kicked a hole right through our living room wall. And my wife's crying, and my daughter's crying. It was like, hey... Man, it was just another day in the Strobel House. In fact, I'm going to tell you the ugliest thing about me, which is that when I was um, a journalist, a drunk, if my daughter, who was a toddler at the time, was alone in the living room, playing with some blocks, some toys or whatever, and she would hear me come home from work through the front door. Her natural reaction was just to gather her toys and go in a room and shut the door. Is she going to be drunk again? Is she going to be yelling and screaming and, you know, kicking holes in walls? You know what? At least it's nice and quiet in here. Friends, that is the ugliest truth about me. My wife Leslie was agnostic. She didn't know what to think about God. And uh, so one day, through some various circumstances, she met a woman who was a Christian, who was a nurse, and they became best friends. And it was very natural for this woman, Linda, to share Jesus with my wife, Leslie. And Leslie wasn't hostile toward this stuff. Nobody had ever told her this stuff before. So she asked questions, she went to church with her, she checks it out, and, and then one day she comes up to me and she gives me the worst news that an atheist could possibly get. She said, Lee, I've decided to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And I thought, oh no, know, <laughs> here it comes. She's going to turn into some holy roller or something. I didn't know. All I knew was I didn't. I didn't sign up for this. This wasn't part of the deal. Literally, the first word that went through my mind was divorce. I was going to walk out. In fact, this is embarrassing to say, but... Um, she had just planted a beautiful flower bed outside and I had to go cut the lawn and I went out and in my anger, I just mowed down all of these flowers that she had just, planted. I was just so angry that this had come into our life. And, um, so for a while I began to see positive changes in her character and in her values and uh, it was winsome and attractive, and it kind of pulled me toward faith. Um, but the other side of it was, I thought, I want the old Leslie back. You know, I married the one Leslie, the fun-filled Leslie, the adventuresome Leslie. Now, I don't know what she's going to turn into, uh, some sexually repressed prude or something. I didn't know. So I thought, how could I rescue her from this cult that she's gotten involved in? And so I looked at it as someone trained in journalism and law, and and I realized that there was an Achilles heel to Christianity. There was a big flaw that I could exploit. And that flaw is this. Christians believe that Jesus died and then returned from the dead. (laughs) I was a journalist. I'd seen plenty of dead bodies. I'd never seen any of them come back from the dead. So I thought, It can't be hard for me to disprove the resurrection of Jesus. Honestly, I thought I could do it in a weekend. Give me a weekend, maybe a three-day weekend, but give me a weekend. I could certainly disprove this. And so I launched into an investigation using my journalism and my legal background to try to get to the truth of Christianity. And I'll be honest with you, I did approach it as quote-unquote objectively as I could. So in other words, my hope was I was gonna discover that it was a lie, that it was a legend, that it was make-believe, that it was uh, mythology, and I could disprove it and rescue legend. That was my hope. But I was trained in journalism, in the old school of journalism. And in the old school of journalism, you tried to be objective. Uh, In baseball terms, you tried to call a ball a ball, a strike a strike. In other words, you wanted to be an umpire. You wanted to evaluate the evidence honestly. And so that's what I sought to do. And so I began to pursue the evidence. And there were four things in particular that captured my fascination and began to draw me in the opposite direction. The first was the evidence that Jesus was dead. You know, I mean, I thought maybe he survived the crucifixion and the cool, damp air of the tomb sort of resuscitated him. So you don't have a miraculous resurrection, you just have a fortuitous resuscitation. That's what I thought. But then I look and what did I find? That there is no evidence anywhere of anyone ever surviving a full Roman crucifixion. That even the Journal of the American Medical Association carried an article analyzing the data And concluded quote clearly the weight of the historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead even before the wound to his side was inflicted Um, and, and I looked and I realized not only do we have multiple accounts of the death of Jesus in the texts of the New Testament there are five ancient sources outside the Bible confirming and corroborating his death so I had to conclude okay Jesus was dead even the atheist scholar Gerd Ludeman says it's indisputable that Jesus was dead. The second thing I looked at was the early accounts of the resurrection. Because I thought going into it, the resurrection was a legend. And I knew it took time for legend to develop in the ancient world. So I figured 100, 150, 200 years after the life of Jesus, stories were invented. Legends were manufactured, and that's where the idea of the resurrection came from. But what I learned decimates that claim what I discovered is the best earliest evidence we have for the resurrection we find in 1st Corinthians 15 starting at verse 3 this ancient creed of the church that says Jesus died why for our sins he was buried and the third day he rose from the dead and then it mentions the specific names of eyewitnesses and groups of eyewitnesses to whom he appeared well as I learned that creed has been dated back by scholars to within months of the death of Jesus far too early to have been a pure legend. In fact, James D.G. Dunn, the great scholar in this area, says this tradition, this creed, we can be entirely certain was was, um, originated within months of the death of Jesus, was formulated within months of the death of Jesus. That's far too quick to write it off as a legend. Third thing was the empty tomb. And what convinced me of that was there was all this evidence involving the empty tomb, but then I realized even the opponents of Jesus conceded the tomb was empty. Because when, when the disciples began proclaiming that Jesus had risen, what the, you know, what the opponents said was, oh, well, the disciples stole the body. Well, they're conceding the tomb is empty, they're just trying to explain how it got empty. So everybody's claiming the tomb was empty. And then finally, the fourth area is eyewitnesses. And what I learned is that we have at least nine accounts in ancient history, inside and outside the New Testament, confirming and corroborating the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the resurrected Jesus. That is an avalanche of historical data. Um, you know, we have um, Paul's testimony about the apostles that that they're saying the same thing, that Jesus was resurrected. We have this creed that dates back too early to be a legend. We have um, Peter in the book of Acts um, saying this Jesus, God raised from the dead, to which we're all witnesses. Um, We have the four gospels, which I believe are credible in their reports. And then outside the Bible, we have uh, Clement, who was personally ordained by Peter. And so he knew the some of the apostles, including Peter. And he writes a letter in the first century to the church in Corinth where he says that the disciples have uh, certainty about their convictions about Jesus being the Son of God because of the resurrection. Uh, And then we have Polycarp, who was ordained by John himself. He knew some some of the disciples. And he writes a letter right after the turn of the century to the church in Philippi. And he has no less than five references to the resurrection. And he says, you know, this is the basis for the conviction of the disciples that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Well, that is a raft of historical data. Um, Nine ancient sources pointing uh, to the truth that Jesus had resurrected. So I spent a year and nine months investigating this. And I looked at the minutiae around the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And it all came down to a Sunday. And Leslie brought me to church that day. And honestly, I can't remember a word (laughs) that was said. But I went home and I I went into my room and I realized um, a good juror reaches a verdict. The evidence was in after two years. It was time to reach a verdict. And so I kind of reviewed all of the data that I had collected over these two years, all of the evidence, and I kind of did a quick little review of it. And then I stepped back and I said, wait a second. In light of the avalanche of evidence that points so powerfully toward the truth of Christianity, I realized it would take more faith to maintain my atheism than to become a Christian. In other words, the scales went like that, they just shifted under the weight of the evidence, and I realized that based on the historical data, I was convinced that Jesus didn't just claim to be the Son of God, but he backed up that claim by returning from the dead. But then I didn't know what to do, because honestly, (laughs) it sounds a little weird, but I felt kind of let down at the moment, because I spent two years of my life doing this, and it's like, okay, I've reached my Conclusion? Is that it? Am I done? What do I do, walk away? Um, but then Leslie pointed out a verse to me, John 1, 12. It says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And I realized that verse forms an equation of what it means to become a child of God. Believe plus receive equals become. So I said, okay, I get it now. I believe based on the historical data that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, He backed it up by returning from the dead, I believe it based on the evidence. But then I realized that's not enough. I had to receive. Receive what? Receive this free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that Jesus purchased for me on the cross when He died as my substitute to pay for all of my sin. And when I would receive this free gift of His grace, in a prayer of repentance and faith, then I would become a child of God. So I got on my knees and I poured out a confession of a lifetime of immorality that would absolutely curl your hair. And at that moment I received complete and total forgiveness through Jesus Christ and I became a child of God. And Leslie burst into tears. And she threw her arms around my neck and she said, I almost gave up on you a thousand times. She said, I remember when I was a new Christian, I met some women at church and I told them about you. And I said, I don't have any hope for my husband. He is the hard-headed, hard-hearted legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. He will never bend his knee to Jesus. And this one elderly saint, her name was Sylvia Sherry, put her arm around Leslie's shoulder and pulled her to the side and said, Oh, Leslie, no one is beyond hope. And she gave her a verse in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, 26, that says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And what I never knew that whole two years that I'm on this investigative journey, what I never knew at the time is every day on her own, in private, on her knees, my wife was praying that verse for me. She was praying, oh, God, Lee's heart is like granite. I can't crack it open. You're going to have to do it. You're going to have to do it. And can I tell you what happened? God, starting on that Sunday afternoon when I put my trust in Christ, God started to answer her prayers because my values changed over time and my character and my morality and my attitudes and my relationships and my priorities and my parenting and my marriage. I mean, all these aspects of my life over time began to change for the good. So much so that our, our little daughter, Allison, um, She was five years old when I came to faith. Think about this. Five years old, all she knew her whole life up to that moment was a dad who was absent, angry, kicking holes in walls, coming home drunk. That was her whole life experience for those first five years. But starting on that Sunday afternoon, you know what she did? She started to watch. Something's changing with my dad. Something's different with my dad. Something's new with my dad. Never interviewed a scholar, never studied ancient history. She's just five years old, but she could watch, she could observe, and she did. And it took about four or five months. And then one Sunday morning, she came up first to her Sunday school teacher and then up to Leslie. And you know what she said? I want God to do for me what he's done for daddy. And at age five, my little girl received this free gift of God's grace, became a child of God, Today she's married to a seminary graduate. She's a novelist, she writes books of fiction, but they all have the gospel of Jesus woven into them. Her and her husband write children's books about God. She is the mother of two of my four precious grandchildren, and today we're the best of friends. And same thing with my son. My son saw the difference at a young age that God was having in his mom and his dad and his sister. And he came to faith as a youngster as well. And and he took a different route. He took an academic route. Got an undergraduate degree in biblical studies. Then he got a master's degree in philosophy of religion. Then he got another master's degree in New Testament. And then after many years of research and study at Yale University and at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, he was awarded his PhD in theology. And you know what he does today? He's a professor of theology in one of the largest Christian seminaries in America, teaching future pastors about Jesus Christ. And six years ago, his wife gave birth to our first grandson. And he named him after his dad. Friends, God healed our family. God rescued our family. He changed my son. He changed my daughter. He changed my wife. He changed me. And now Leslie and I just celebrated our 46th wedding anniversary together. That's the power
0: of story. That's the power of Jesus. That's how he can change a family tree. As I mentioned, he's written several books. I read a few of those very early in my own faith journey that I found very helpful that I just want to take a quick minute to recommend to you. Two I recommend to a lot of people is one's called The Case for Christ, and the other one's called The Case for Faith. The Case for Christ is a book that retraces Lee's own spiritual journey from atheism to faith and builds a captivating case for Christ's divinity. And The Case for Faith is a book that turns Lee's investigative skills to the most persistent emotional objections, and he overcomes those, to belief in God. And again, I can't recommend these two books enough. Uh, I think both of these books will help grow your faith. They'll tackle some tough questions as he explored those in his own journey. I think a lot of us may even have. But I want to close this morning with just a few questions. A few things to ponder, and maybe even do. When we look at the life of Saul, a man who witnessed a killing of someone who was a follower of Jesus, a follower of the way, not only do we see the power of God to radically transform someone's life, we also see an example that no matter what our past is, no matter what we've done, no matter even what we're doing now, we can still experience this radical transformation of God's love. And maybe you walked in here this morning with a past that you haven't been able to forgive yourself. You haven't been able to let go. You keep pondering it and thinking about it. You let it go and you pick it back up. Well, Jesus is ready. He's willing to take that from you this morning. And as Lee Strobel said in his own story, nobody is beyond hope. Nobody is beyond God's reach. Saul also gives us an example that God can redirect our path no matter what road we find ourselves on. He was on a road to at least arrest people, possibly murder people, and that completely changed. And as we seek God's guidance and his purpose for our life, he'll begin to speak into our own lives. He'll break in and he'll illuminate maybe the path we're on and he'll head a different way. The Solomon gives us great examples of that. Saul's story and even Lee's story reminds us that God can orchestrate events in our own lives to point us towards Jesus. I mean, this happened in my own story. When uh, my wife and I decided to go to church really as a last ditch effort to to save our own marriage, and I didn't have any faith orientation. I'm the one who brought it up. I had no reason to bring up church as an option. But somehow, God had broken in just enough for that to be an option. And let us not forget Ananias. Ananias was obedient to God's instruction to go to Saul. He didn't want to do that. Like I know who this guy is. I know what he's been given permission and authority to do. I know what he's likely going to do when he sees me. Right? Like, but he was obedient, despite his initial... Resistance, his fear and his doubt, which demonstrates his own faith and obedience to God. And I believe our stories are littered with people like this, right? People that are fearful, maybe to say something, to approach, to to approach somebody, to invite them to church, to speak about Jesus. And I believe if you've been a Christ follower long enough, you've not only been this person, but you've received this kind of uh, truth speaking and building up and encouragement. I've been that, and I've certainly received it myself. It's all about that obedience. It's about that prayer. and I prayed for Saul. Prayer is often overlooked as one of the key components of our own faith journey. It's one of the most loving things we can do. I think it starts to soften that, that heart that God can break into. I learned after I gave my life to Christ, I had a brother and sister-in-law who had been praying for me for years. I had no idea until I would given my life to Christ and made that a public announcement, they shared that information. We heard in Lee's own story that his wife was praying for him before he ever came to faith in Christ. I've tried to make this part of my own prayers in the last several months, praying for those that are far from God, praying for those that have drifted from God, praying for those that are lost, meaning they don't know how much they're loved by Jesus. This is yet another way we can ask God to break into the lives of the people that we love the most. And lastly, we see that Saul fasted. Fasting is a way to, again, seek God's guidance, his wisdom, uh, work through challenges, maybe concerns, ask for direction in various aspects of our life. I am a terrible faster. (laughs) I'm just not great. It's another discipline I have to work at. I I can fast from... Social media, pretty well. But if it comes to food, and I'm not like a big foodie for whatever reason, that's just a, an area in my own life I've got to work at. But this is a glimpse of how God breaks into the lives of his people another way. It's a reminder of the power of God and what he can do when we can t- continue to surrender our needs and our, our wants to him. And because I came to Christ and my wife re-engaged her own faith, we have now four great kids. We've we didn't come to divorce, obviously. We, because I gave my life to, to Christ and my wife reengaged her faith, we were able to baptize all four of them. Days I'll always remember. And because I came to faith, my wife reengaged her faith, in 16 days we'll celebrate 25 years of marriage. In this video, we heard from Lee about how God began to do a work in him. And it was a process, right? He didn't say it changed everything overnight. He said over time. And it restored his own marriage and his relationship with his daughter. Again, this is the power of a decision to follow Jesus. When Jesus breaks into our lives, he begins to do a work inside of us to change us to be more like him. But it is a lifelong journey. I am still a broken man, I'm a sinful man. I still have to repent of my wrongdoings. I still need to accept the forgiveness that Jesus offers. I may not be who I want to be, but I'm not who I was. I'm still imperfect, but I'm learning more and more how to pursue Jesus. I continue to make that decision to pursue and follow Jesus. I'm learning and relearning how to better listen to Jesus. This is why we do the classes like we did last week. For me, it's not always new information. Some of it is, but it's a great refresher. And Like, oh yes, that's another way I can listen. That's another way I can follow. That's another way I can be obedient. I still want to be obedient to Christ. I think if you're here this morning, if you're listening, you do too, right? This is what we're all invited into. And so if you haven't read through Acts 9 and you're in the reading plan you will later this week think about your own spiritual journey what road were you on before christ broke into your own life and what road has he put you on where do you find yourself getting off exit ramps you have no business getting off of and just ask god just redirect me i'm sorry i took i took back the wheel you know that song jesus take the wheel like sorry i took it back like we're really good at that as humans right we're selfish at the core we try to protect ourselves and get what we want. I'm in the seat with you. But Jesus, we truly want to follow your way. We want to be one of your kids. Thanks for loving us the way you do. And watch what begins to happen as we pursue Christ and allow him. And we receive, as Lee said. And we start to walk more and more into the authority of being one of his kids. People will start to notice, as Lee noticed in his own wife. And there is some kind of magnet that happens. People begin to ask you questions. We had somebody share a story in our pre-meeting about that again this morning. Like It just happens over and over and over in our lives when we just do what we're called to do, which is love Christ with everything that we have and then love our neighbors as ourselves. Grab your Connect cards that Ali mentioned. And if you haven't filled this out, I encourage you to write your name at least pull that out of the seat back in front of your area program, drop it in the offering and in just a minute. We're going to offer you some next steps. We believe God has a next step for you, that God wants you to do something out of this. And sometimes when people hear next step and do something, they think that in like the human strength, like, I'll just do it. And some of that is true. But really, we're always inviting Christ at the center of that, right? We don't want to do anything outside of God's will, out of his, his purpose for us, out of his spirit, and his guidance. Maybe that first one is like, Lee, so many years ago, maybe you've been on your own journey of investigation, and today is the day you accept Christ for the first time. You believe, and then you receive, and you become a child of God. That's a good little formula, right? Like, there is something, too, like, yeah, I believe it's true, but if you never accept that as truth in your own life, it changes nothing. But maybe today is the day you're like, no, I'm going to put my faith in. I'm going to believe that's true in my own life I want to start to ask God to start to show up that way and he said he went on his knees and repented and had this I think there's something cleansing that happens when we do that I've said this before but I don't think as Christ followers especially if you've been one for a while we don't do that enough like we don't repent enough just acknowledging where we're broken and where we've missed the mark Not in some shame way, but in some cleansing way. And the only way God can, he just cleanses you. And you leave lighter when you do that. And like, wow, you still love me in spite of all that. Right? And so when we talk about repentance, it's simply saying you're sorry for the things that you've done. And you turn to Jesus and you continue to ask for his guidance in your own life. Maybe today is the day you make that your first time decision. Note that on the connect card and drop it in the offering. Again, if you don't have a Bible, grab one. talked a lot about the uh, debunking of the the cross and resurrection. There's a great free resource if you don't have one. We've given this away a few years ago called At the Cross in the Back. Grab one of those short little pamphlets. Um, I think that, again, will encourage your faith. The second one is a memory verse. We do a memory verse for every series. And the memory verse for this one is, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. If we could just get that back. Seek first Jesus, His kingdom. Everything that He's about, His righteousness, everything that He sees is right. All these things, which is the previous chapter, shall be given to you, provided for you. Which is all about contentment and love, and patience and peace. But here's the application: Believe Jesus can change you. Believe God can redirect your path. Believe God can orchestrate your circumstances for his purpose. Be open to being discipled. Be prayerful in our pursuit and practice and fasting. That seems like a lot, right? But a key word there is just believe God can change who you are to who you want to be. You may not be who you want to be, but you're not who you were, right? No matter the circumstances in your life, God can orchestrate those to use them for his own purpose. Be open to be discipled. Look for people that are further along in your faith journey. Again, this morning, as God orchestrates stories, somebody shared how that's been impactful to them as they've been a discipler to people. And be prayerful in that pursuit. God, am I on the right path? What else do you have for me? God, I have these people that are far from. Me. as a community we could challenge each other to to fast a little more right make that a discipline certainly food maybe you're watching too much tv maybe you got too much screen time what would it look like to fast from that 24 hours 48 hours 72 hours 40 days whatever god puts on your heart let's leave here in that pursuit of christ and then receive prayer Maybe as Lee's sharing his story, some of the things about your own story have popped up. Maybe you're on this own journey and you don't like the path you're on. You need prayer for that. Maybe people that you feel are lost. Maybe they've drifted. We'd love to pray with you and for them. We have prayer teams up here on my right, in our back left corner. I really think if you haven't received prayer, you're just missing another opportunity to pursue Christ in this way to ask people to come in and intercede to partner with you with what's going on in your life. I'm going to go ahead and receive our offering and I'm going to drop your Connect cards in there. Just thanks. Thanks for your continued generosity to this place. We couldn't do anything that we do without your generosity. While they're doing that, if you want to grab your communion elements, this is just another way that we pursue Christ is almost every Sunday through communion we're reminded what God has done for us in Christ. That his body was broken, as Lee talked about a little bit, and his blood was shed. He did that, he died on a cross for you and for me. He was the atoning, perfect, last sacrifice for our sin. And so when we do that, we're just reminded that that's how much he loved us. His pursuit of the Father, even though he didn't want to walk the path, he did it anyway. He was obedient to death. Not, not only are we just remembering what he did, we're reminding ourselves that Christ lives in us as well. Let me pray. God, thanks. Thanks for stories like Lee. Thanks for every story of faith that's in this room, that's those that are listening. God, just remind us of the path you've, you've brought us through, the struggles we face, the circumstances you've orchestrated, the belief that you have, that we have in you, the, the receiving of that. God, help us to receive it now. Remind us of who you are. Remind us of what you've done. Remind us the power that's available to us, the changing that you've done in us, that you want to continue to do in us, to conform our image to be more like yours. Remind us how much we're loved right Nothing can separate us. God, thanks for loving us the way you do. In Jesus' name, we pray. And We to sit or stand and receive prayer.